0: The Finnambulist Podcast by Leopold Lambert. Today, European Femonationalism and Domestic Violence Against Women with Sarah Farris. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Sarah Farris, who is a senior lecturer in sociology at Goldsmiths, University of London, and the author of two books, one about Max Weber's theory of personality, and one we will talk about more today, which is called In the Name of Women's Rights, The Rise of Feminine Nationalism, published by uh, Duke University Press in 2017. Um, and we are recording this conversation uh, for once through Skype, as uh, we're trying to make this uh, interview uh, be the, the the transcript of uh, uh, in the next issue of the uh magazine, uh, number thirteen. So, uh, hello, Sarah. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me in the beginning of August, which is not the best <laughs> the best moment, <laughs> but I'm very appreciative. Um, so as i said we will we will talk about femo nationalism as uh, this issue of the Phenomenalist I'm talking about is uh, dedicated to queer and feminist perspective and interior spaces um and perhaps uh before we even uh, dive too much into it could you could you tell us a little bit what you mean when you use this uh, concept of femo nationalism
1: Yes, the concept of femonationalism nationalism really describes. Uh, um, on the one hand, the appropriation, or I should even say explo- exploitation of feminist themes and ideas of gender equality by right-wing parties like Front National in France, for example, uh, particularly in anti-Islam campaigns, and on the other hand, it also describes um, the endorsement of anti-Islam Um, slogans and ideas by some feminists and femocrats. So it really describes a quite contemporary phenomenon that we can see in countries like France, Italy or the Netherlands, which are really the countries on which my my, my book focuses, but also, uh, I would say, across the Western world. Um, So it is quite uh, a new phenomenon in, uh, in many respects. Uh, But, you know, there are also uh, certain historical legacies that I describe uh, and and discuss in the book.
0: Um, And, well, the reason why I found that uh, extremely interesting to include it in this particular issue of the Phenomenalist is also because it might create a very productive dialogue with uh, the text written by uh, Mohamed Mack, about homo nationalism as well and and I think you you probably would agree to say that um both forms of nationalism presume that uh, western societies are less misogynistic or homophobic than others and in particular the former colonized societies uh, is that is that the way you would you would uh, do do you, do you find it do you find this uh, this dialogue between both aspects uh, pro- as productive as I suppose it to be
1: yes definitely well, when I, when I wrote this book, certainly I was inspired by the work of Jasper Poir, who had published her, her book on nationalism in 2007, and uh, certainly um, I think it's a quite interesting. Uh, an important phenomenon to analyze from a left perspective, uh, to see how uh, emancipatory projects uh, and uh, you know people who we consider on the left uh, or movements that we associate uh, with left ideas uh, such as LGBT movements, queer movements and feminist movements. Uh, it's quite important to see how uh, in some ways they have been uh, um, some of them, obviously, not all of them. How they have been, in, in some ways, seduced. I'm not sure this is the word, uh, the correct word, but uh, how they have been even co-opted or how they have internalized. Uh, perhaps it's better to say certain right-wing ideas and certain, especially Islamophobic ideas. So how. Uh, You know, this work is really about how, particularly in my case, how feminists—some feminists—I really want to stress, because certainly it's not all of them—how they have begun, uh, you know, to use ideas of gender equality, particularly against Muslim males, uh, under the uh, the stereotype that Islam is uh, um, a religion which oppresses women more than other religions, and in a way that Muslim men are uh, en masse uh, some kind of group of people that, by definition, are misogynist, uh, that oppress women and are unable to respect women's rights. So certainly uh, the two phenomena are homo nationalism and femonationalism are very uh, connected because in, in the case of uh, Jasbir Puar's work, um, Her whole point was precisely to look at the ways in which LGBT, uh, LGBTQ movements and queer movements uh, were endorsing in the United States Islamophobic ideas and Islamophobic slogans uh, somehow aligning or colluding with American nationalism. And I look at the ways in which some feminists are somehow aligning with European nationalisms, Italian, French or Dutch, in uh, in this islamophobic war against muslim males in
0: particular um so if we if we look um if we look at how feminationalism deploys itself uh and maybe not quite yet talking about space but we we're, we're going to get there uh, uh pretty soon uh we can see, we can see how in your work there's uh, there are two um two female subjects that are that are invoked and two that are extremely distinct. Uh, one that is a white woman, and uh, we, we can think of uh, in particular the, the events in, uh, in Cologne in, uh, in the New Year's Eve of 2015, as well as more recently what's been um, the stigmatization of the neighborhood of La Chapelle in Paris, for example, that we can maybe describe a little bit uh, further on. But that sort of very much uh, capitalized on the on the the trope of uh, our woman, to, uh, the, this this sort of uh, this sort of uh, uh, discursive, uh, very colonial uh, uh, idea of of a patriarchal nation, patriarchal and colonial nation defending their woman, quote unquote. And then there's another, there's another, uh, body that is, uh, subge- subjectivized by this feminist nationalism, which, which are, uh, brown women or women of color and, and Muslim women in particular who are invoked to be, uh, saved from their own community, uh, that are deemed, uh, patriarchal when Western societies would not be seen this way. Uh, could you could you perhaps talk more about those two um, those two uh, uh, sort of distinct but uh sub- subjectivization of women uh, through this discourse
1: yes absolutely yes my book is precisely devoted to understand this kind of conundrum and even paradox because i really began by uh, asking how is that racist discourses about immigrants and about Muslims seem to be so gendered, which means to make a distinction between the migrant men or Muslim men on the one hand as the oppressors, the rapists and the criminals, and on the other hand, the brown women, migrant or Muslim women as the the victims. Um, So one of the first things to to recognize is the... uh, What I call, but also other authors have called the sexualization of racism, which means precisely that the racism is very gendered and is very sexualized, and also plays out according to a certain sexual and sexualized register. So, by looking at that, I began really to to explore how is that these right-wing nationalists seem to uh, want to also save uh, or these. Muslim and brown women. So they foreground them as victims, but also they seem somehow to offer rescue to these women. So, um, in a way, uh, what these these right-wing nationalists are doing, as you said already, is precisely stigmatizing the brown migrant and Muslim men as potential rapists, according to a very classical colonial and nationalist trope which is precisely the one according to which the women need to be saved from foreign and non-national men and obviously according to uh, the, the, the classical uh, we can say nationalist, uh, nationalist trope or the nationalist uh, history obviously women national women need, need to be saved need to be preserved uh, from non-national men because obviously they are the biological reproducers of the nation. So the whole idea is to maintain the racial and ethnic purity uh, of the nation. That's why nationalists very much uh, um, discourage interracial marriage and interethnic ethnic uh, um, marriage precisely. On the other hand, my question was really, okay, we can understand according to a nationalist trope why these nationalists want to uh, preserve uh, um, national women. But why do they care about non-national women? Why do they care about trying to save these brown Muslim women? Why do they offer them rescue? Here, obviously, the the answer is a little bit more complex, but it's important, I think, to understand that the same nationalist uh, rhetoric is playing out here, or the same nationalist interest. Because nationalists conceive of women fundamentally as agentless, as fundamentally the bearers of the collective, the bearers of the nation. And this applies also to non-national women, to foreign women. The idea of the nationalists have is that, in a way, precisely because women are agentless, they are easier to to mould, they are easier to assimilate to another culture. And therefore, it is very important to work on women, on foreign women, to try to assimilate them precisely because women are the ones who are then going to educate the second generations. And so they are, we can say, the vectors of integration, the vectors of those values, of those national values that nationalists somehow, uh, not somehow, that nationalists actually want these women to internalize and then transmit to the second generation. So in a way, I think the discourse the right wing nationalists try you know not obviously entirely coherently to to put forward is okay we have these migrants we have these women uh, the women are on the one hand the victims of men who are really the ones who are not assimilable they are non redeemable subjects the women are redeemable precisely because they are fundamentally bearers of the group and so we need to work on them we need to subtract them from the communities save them as it were and at the same time assimilate them to our values in order for them then to to really become like us. And so we can read also uh, through this prism uh, the whole idea that Muslim women need to get rid of the veil precisely because they need to assimilate to Western ideas of womanhood, they need to learn how to behave in a certain Western way and so on and so forth. Uh, I think you're right that there are these two uh, fem- women subjects, female female subjects, they're playing out. I think it's also important to understand the commonality within the nationalist matrix that foregrounds women uh, in this way.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps what I what I should add um, to this uh, dichotomy is that um, some things that you you write in your book, which is that uh, we should not also think that. Uh, white feminists who sort of take part in uh, homo nationalist discourse are being instrumentalized by nationalism because it would it would also sort of take, withdraw their agency in the same way that we tend to withdraw the agency of Muslim women wearing hijab as being, uh, as being instrumentalized by their own community right no,
1: yeah absolutely uh, i 'm glad actually you pick up this point because I think it 's quite important. Uh, I I really stress that uh, um, it's important to understand we are not talking simply about the instrumentalization or exploitation of feminism here. Of course there is that, in the sense that, of course, parties like uh, the Front National or the Northern League in Italy or the PVV, the Party for Freedom in the Netherlands, when they invoke uh, themes of gender equality, Uh, against Muslims and against migrants. Of course, they are exploiting feminist themes because they couldn't care less about feminism. And in fact, they are quite hypocritical when they invoke feminism because they, especially in the case of the Front National and the Northern League, they put forward quite traditionalist ideas, anti-feminist ideas of womanhood. But they certainly instrumentalize feminism against the migrant and Muslim communities. On the other hand, those feminists who uh, endorse Islamophobic ideas, who say things like uh, Islam uh, oppresses women more than other religions do, or that say that Muslim women, in fact, do not choose to, to wear the veil, for instance, I think it would be a mistake to say they are instrumentalized, precisely because, as you said, it would be, first of all, Um, like playing out into the idea that women uh, feminists uh, don't really have ideas of their own, but they are precisely instrumentalized by others. But also because we need to understand what are the ideological matrices that uh, actually lead these feminists to deploy these Islamophobic ideas. And my uh, proposal in the book is that they actually... um, they deploy a form of Western supremacism, which means that they are they have fundamentally internalized they fundamentally believe in the idea that the gender relations in the West are much more advanced than in the rest of the world, and that uh, this, is, this is somehow due to some form of superiority, historical and civilizational superiority that the, the West Um, somehow uh, possesses as compared to the rest of the world, particularly as compared to the Muslim world. And this is, uh, you know, even this in some ways is not new. Um, We have already examples in the 1920s of uh, um, feminist women uh, in the suffragette movement who were, um, you know, involved in colonial enterprises in ambiguous ways, but somehow there was some kind of trade-off between uh, you know the participation of some feminists in colonial campaigns in exchange for the right to vote in uh, uh, in their own countries. So this is just to say very briefly that you know uh, this is not the first time that feminists somehow deploy this form of Western supremacism, this form of uh, uh, you know kind of paternalism uh, towards women from, uh, we say now, Global South or from the colonies, as it was in the past. And that's why I really want to stress, it's really, really wrong to think this is just about instrumentalization. We need to understand the deep ideological roots of the phenomenon and why some of these feminists are led to, you know, to say these things, believe these things and, and act in this way.
0: Mm. And perhaps to even add to that, and uh, using uh, something that uh, good friend of the feminist uh, Françoise Garges, often reminds everyone is that European women may not have had the right to vote, the right to have their own bank account, uh, the right to uh, divorce even before, but uh, but they had the right to own uh, human beings uh, through through slavery. So that's also something we we tend to forget in the in the link. That, uh, with colonialism that uh, uh, needs to be integrated within the history of feminism as well I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Um, so uh, since I'm interested to talk about those issues in a very uh, spatial uh, uh, perspective, uh, perhaps that's something we can start um, doing. Uh, mm-hmm. Some Something that's very observable in feminationalist discourse relatively to uh, uh, the safety of women uh, in general is that it very much uh, focuses on a public space, and and that's where the whole um, the whole events of Cologne also uh, perfectly provided the, the sort of setting, special setting for fe- nationalism to express itself. But one of the good ways to realize how uh, this discourse is. Uh, at the very least, uh, um, uh, missing a missing a gigantic part, uh, a gigantic space from uh, uh, the violence uh, against women is the domestic space, and the fact that um, what uh, what my friend Chris Blash expressed in such terms as saying that the most dangerous place for a woman is home, uh, with those uh, those uh, very very worrying statistics of 22% uh, of european women who have suffered from physical or sexual violence by a partner and and i think the this uh, this uh, dimension of home that very much statistically belongs to no this violence belongs to no community uh, and uh, is just fully part of patriarchy is completely evacuated from discourse is that something that uh, that you can uh, talk about in relation to your work
1: Well, I think one of the uh, important things to analyze, certainly, is the fact that female nationalist discourses tend to depict uh, uh, migrant communities or uh, Muslim communities as particularly dangerous for women, precisely in light of uh, the fact that these are supposedly backward and misogynist anti-women cultures, uh, and that, uh, you know, these non, um, non-Western migrant men, brown, black, uh, Muslim men, uh, according to these uh, narratives, these feminationalist narratives, uh, are particularly prone uh, to uh, to disrespect women, to a potential rapist. They are fundamentally dangerous. So uh, certainly within the feminationalist discourse, uh, the idea is precisely that uh, uh, the outside space and precisely uh, we can say the neighborhood, uh, the, the migrant neighborhood, the banlieue uh, or uh, you know those spaces in the city in which there is a higher concentration of migrants and Muslims uh, are places that are more dangerous uh, somehow for women. And so in that sense we can we can see, we can use the metaphor of the space precisely to see how there is an externalization perhaps we can say, of danger for women in general in those uh, um, racialized spaces. Um, And obviously this is absolutely against statistics uh, and what we know about where violence against women, violence against women takes place. Uh, All statistics say, uh, in the majority of Western countries at least, as far as I know, that uh, the majority violence against women, domestic violence and various types of violence, are usually perpetrated by uh, men that are very close to women, which means husbands, fathers, boyfriends, friends, and so forth. So it is absolutely, we can say that it's precisely the internal space, the domestic space, that actually seems to be more dangerous for women. So statistics immediately deny the female nationalist ideology and the female nationalist trop. And uh, precisely, they show that it is absolutely not true, that the external space or you know, those racialized spaces are more dangerous for women. We need to be careful about this. Of course, I am not saying that there is no violence against women in migrant communities or Muslim communities and so forth. Of course, there is violence, because violence against women takes place everywhere, unfortunately. Um, The point is that there is no statistics, there is no study that shows that there is more violence against women in these uh, uh, non-Western migrant Muslim communities as compared to, um, how can we call them, national or indigenous communities whatever you want to call them so there is there is absolutely no study demonstrating that and that's a very important thing to say precisely because the the islamophobic and racist propaganda according to which uh, men from um, from the global south are particularly dangerous for women is incredibly strong it is something that it's been incredibly uh, you know, it's it's been really internalized by Western populations in Europe, like in in other uh, Western countries, really, and, and perhaps also in in other non-Western countries. So it's something that we really need continuously to you know to dismantle by really talking about the fact that it doesn't correspond to reality.
0: So we are we are now situated uh, in those interior spaces that this issue of the phenobulus is trying to look at. And, um, and there are another dimension of violence uh, that probably we need to consider, which, is, uh, which has to do with, uh, with the fact that the domestic space is not just lived by uh, its residents necessarily, but also by potential workers. And that's mm-hmm. something you've been looking in particular when it comes to uh, uh, to a migrant workforce, in particular female migrant workforce in the industry of the care. Uh, something that you 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 refer to um, uh, following uh, following Marx, you you refer to as a reserve army of labor. Uh, could you could you tell us about this other dimension of uh, of violence?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um... I really work especially on um, female migration and uh, care or social reproductive work because what uh, um, migrant women or women from the Global South more generally tend to do in uh, uh, Western European societies, Western European countries is especially this type of jobs. They work mostly as carers, nannies, uh, made uh, both in private households but also you know in other um, places and institutions so one of the things that i try to say in this book uh, is precisely that we need to understand that this gender dichotomy um, according to which the non-western men are uh, you know the the criminals or uh, the oppressors and, and the non-Western women are instead the victims that need to be rescued, I think we also need to understand them from an economic point of view. And one of the things that I invite the reader to look at or to think about is precisely the way in which this gendered racialized dichotomy plays out very clearly in discussions about res- migrants as reserves army of labor so basically the, if you if you really think about what we read in newspapers, uh, usually the propaganda um, the, the racist and right wing propaganda, which unfortunately is not just right wing, is that uh, migrants uh, take jobs from nationals that they are stealing our jobs now. When you think actually carefully about this type of propaganda, actually what it says is not so much that migrants in general are stealing jobs, but that it is the male migrants that are stealing jobs, um, and that's precisely because there is a very very gendered uh, type of uh, uh, you know races that it's uh, that, that it's taking place here, and that's it, that is particularly. Harsh in period of periods of economic crisis, uh, but if we think carefully about this racist trope, we never associate the migrant stealing the job to the migrant woman, and that is precisely because um, usually, actually, these migrant women. Uh, are placed in a sector of the economy in which we know almost instinctively almost because we actually you know we observe our our societies our everyday everyday realities that these women actually do those jobs that not only are not stolen from um you know national workers but actually that they do those jobs that, that allow many women in particular many national women in particular to go out and uh, you know and work uh, outside households so what i try to say in this book is that um the concept the Marxian concept of reserve army of labor is absolutely very very important to understand our neoliberal economies or capitalist economies more generally and the way in which. Uh, Uh, the the role that migrants play within these capitalist economies as reserve armies of labor. But at the same time, what I say is that we need to be careful and to observe how the role of migrant women is partly different in the sense that um, at least until now uh, or, you know, in the last 30 years, which is precisely when we since, you know, it really corresponds to the time of the so-called feminization of migration. So in the last 30 years, migrant women really have not, um, they are not the ones who have, for instance, lost so much their jobs, even in times of economic crisis, but on the, on, on the contrary, they tend to keep their jobs and there is a rising demand for these migrant women uh, in the social reproductive sector. And this is particularly true in a context after the, the last economic crisis, in which uh, well, the welfare state um, you know, it has been uh, uh, increasingly cut in the majority of Western European countries. And this has led to a situation in which lots of these uh, um, you know, care jobs have been increasingly commodified. And one of the ways in which they have been commodified is precisely by hiring uh, migrant women. And the reason is that they are usually cheaper and uh, they they tend to work for much lower wages and to accept uh, you know worse working conditions as compared to national workers very often simply because national workers might have um you know a higher a wider range of choices so I certainly think it's very, very important to look at the economic dimensions of this female nationalist ideology and also to work with these Marxian concepts to try to, to understand what, really, what these migrant workers are doing. But it's important to do that from a gender perspective because otherwise uh, the risk is that of applying the same categories that we have traditionally used for male migrant workers also to um, female migrant workers but that actually doesn't work precisely because these women tend to be employed in a very, very specific sector of the economy.
0: Some things that I'm going to try to do more and more uh, through this uh, podcast series is to perhaps after discussing of uh, uh, rather difficult topics is to perhaps address uh, initiatives that are, uh, that are done uh, to resist against uh, these uh, dominant discourses and uh, practices. And mm-hmm. so I'd, I'd be interested to ask you if, um, if uh, you've been uh, looking at particular initiatives of the kind. I mean, personally, I was thinking of the counter investigations that had been done at a journalistic level uh, in Saint-Denis by Vidad Kefti and Sia bag, and in La Chapelle by uh, Leila Kuel and uh, Nasira El-Modem uh, describe going back uh, bits by bits to to every single thing that have been uh, written in certain very sti- stigmatizing uh, journalistic um, reportage that very much contribute to female nationalism I mean in La Chapelle in, so in the, this uh, North neighborhood of Paris, uh, where uh, many uh, East African migrants uh, find uh, 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 find shelter when they when uh, they arrived in Paris. That has been the site of a lot of police violence over there. But so there there is a strong there is a strong male presence indeed in the public space, and uh, that allowed uh, uh, French journalists to write particularly uh, 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 atrocious uh, writing. So those counter investigation have been have been uh, absolutely uh, uh, fantastic to to very much debunk uh, every single line of those uh, of those of those accounts. Uh, but so I, I suppose that you probably have some uh, much more other examples of things that are that are currently uh, being done against that.
1: Well, I mean, certainly I agree that it's very very important to you know to carry out counter investigations and to precisely dismantle the stereotypes that are created um, well one of the things i'm thinking right now though is probably um, the campaigns for instance uh, uh, in the um in, in the uk in particular I, i'm thinking about the victories of the cleaners and uh, uh you know Social reproductive workers who have won important victories for their rights, um, for instance, at the University at SOAS, or they're carrying out also um, these type of struggles for the for the rights at uh, LSE, at the University mm. of London School of Economics. I think these are quite important because one of the things that actually I wanted to say is that uh, I think one of the ways in which we can, in the long term, support uh, Um, or try to dismantle the female nationalist ideology is also by uh, recognizing the importance of social reproductive work and the importance of uh, uh, recognizing the rights, the full workers' rights of those who work in the sector. Um, The second thing though to remember is that one of the major strengths of the female nationalist ideology is the participation of feminists. One of the reasons why, uh, you know, so many people are actually convinced that, uh, in fact, Muslims are misogynists or that migrants, uh, uh, non-Western migrants are potentially rapists and so forth, is not simply because of the mass media propaganda or the right-wing propaganda. This propaganda, which of course is very, very strong, has been also reinforced by the endorsement of these uh, discussions by some feminists. And I really want to stress some, because there are lots of feminists that are in fact absolutely against these racist stereotypes. But it's important to obviously understand how, uh, you know, mass media obviously tend to, you know, emphasize and foreground the voices of those, uh, uh, you know, of those feminists in particular, who tend to, um, you know, to agree with the, with the mainstream and stereotyping ideas. And here I'm thinking of France, where obviously um, Elizabeth Badinter for example, she played a very big role in, uh, uh, in you know, reinforcing the idea that Islam uh, is a particularly misogynist an oppressive religion towards women, or that Muslim women need to get rid of the veil because it really is nothing but an imposition and a symbol of oppression. So obviously, you know, when a renowned and um, when a renowned internationally famous feminist tells you that actually these women are really oppressed and that Islam is a religion that oppresses women, of course you believe it. You think, well, it is a feminist telling us, so who else knows it if not her? And also, it's important to understand also, this has been reinforced also by the participation not only of some white feminists, but also of some feminists of Muslim descent or coming from Muslim families or from, uh, you know, countries, originally from countries uh, uh, with a Muslim majority. And yeah, again, France is quite the emblematic example because there are a number of women a number of feminists of uh, immigr- immigr- immigrant descent, Algerian or Moroccan descent, who have participated in the female nationalist discourse. And I'm thinking, obviously, uh, well, many years ago, of Niput uh, Nisumis. I'm thinking also of Suaz uh, Bay, who is also a woman of North African origin, a right wing politician and self declared feminist in Italy and so forth. So I'm, I guess I'm saying all of this because. Um, I think it is very important to to you know to carry on to carry out these uh, um counter informative or counter hegemonic how we want to uh, exp- you know describe them investigations but it's also very very important to understand the source of the strength of these um of these ideologies and these, these discourses so i really uh, that's why i think it's also very important to give voice more and more uh, to those Muslim women, for example, who say, uh, who are actually, you know, organizing against these Western supremacist, white feminist, uh, Islamophobic propaganda. And here again, there are many examples in France of mothers who have organized in schools against, uh, uh, you know, the, the law against the veil. Uh, I'm thinking also of uh, also Muslim women, uh, organizations of Muslim women in the Netherlands or in Italy. I think it's increasingly important that these women are actually foregrounded, that we give voice to them in order to have counter narratives.
0: And would you agree that perhaps it involved also uh, adding an S to feminism and uh, making it more plural in the way we think of it? I mean, I'm thinking in particular of... Uh, of the work that's been done around uh, the activi- activist and scholar works that's been done around uh, Islamic feminisms by Zahra Ali or some groups in France called La Lab, or uh, would, would would the plurality of feminism allow for uh, a better resistance? Uh,
1: I think so. Absolutely. I think it is important to, to recognize that there are many feminisms and that, uh, you know, uh, there are different perspectives and, uh, very often they coincide uh, with different political positions, with different, uh, you know, um, worldviews more generally uh, about issues of class and race. So it is certainly important also in the case of uh, uh, so-called Islamic feminism or Muslim feminists uh, also to understand what it is, And to to have certainly a dialogue, I mean, to to recognize that there is also this variant of feminism, which for many Western white feminists is kind of an oxymoron, because the idea somehow is that you cannot have a religious-oriented feminism. And this, of course, is very much the result of feminist struggles and feminist movements, uh, the women's movement in Europe, which in many ways was... um, you know a response or certainly was very much um, critical when not entirely um, uh, we can say attempting to overturn uh, you know the impositions of the vatican and the catholicism and obviously as an italian i am very much aware of the danger you know the catholicism and the vatican represents for women's rights so i also understand some suspicion that feminists have um, you know, towards religious-inspired feminism but at the same time I think it is also important to understand that women have gone through different struggles, that even in Europe many feminist theologians for instance or many uh, religious-inspired feminisms actually have had a place in the women's movement. So I think it is important to recognize this pluralism and to work together around issues, common issues and common struggles.
0: Great. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me uh, for, uh, uh, for this, uh, around this particular issue. And I invite everyone to obviously to read your book, uh, In the Name of Women's Rights, The Rise of Feminationalism. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.